Today's scripture reading is Hebrews chapter A. Morning. You'll look like more from up here. <laughs> All right. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, that it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a uh, copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the new covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on, the, uh, on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, as we've mentioned, this year we're going through the story of the Bible together. Today we're in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a really interesting one because it speaks directly to a reality that if you try to live as a Christian, you will experience this reality at some point in your life. And here's the reality. Jesus is awesome. The salvation that he gives us is great, but sometimes it's really hard to live as a Christian. Has anyone ever experienced that? Like it's just really hard sometimes to live as a Christian. And there are a bunch of specific things that make it hard, but I think we can just summarize them using this blanket term, suffering. And the Bible is clear that if we are Christians, we will suffer in some way, shape, or form. And, and often because of our faith. And as humans, we don't like to suffer. Suffering is difficult. And, and especially when that suffering comes because of our faith in Jesus. And many people, when they start to suffer because of their faith in Jesus, they start to wonder, is it worth it? Would my life maybe just be better if I didn't trust in Jesus anymore? And that's exactly the situation that was facing the church in the book of Hebrews, which we're looking at today. They were suffering and struggling because of their faith. And many of them were thinking, you know, maybe 
if I just stop following Jesus, if I just stop trusting in him, it will make my life easier. And the whole book of Hebrews is one big argument where the author is trying to convince the people in this church, don't give up. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Don't give up. And today we're looking at Hebrews chapter eight, but we're not gonna dig deeply into this passage. We're actually just gonna look at a couple of verses of it and see how in these verses, the author is trying to make that argument to this church, don't give up. And we could pretty much dive in anywhere in the book of Hebrews for this. We're doing chapter eight today because that's what I chose we would do. Um, But the whole book, it's just one long argument for why we should not give up on following Jesus when, when it gets hard, when we start to suffer for our faith. And so that's the question we're looking at today. If we are Christians, why should we stick with Jesus when things get hard? And the answer that is given again and again and again throughout the book of of Hebrews is that we should stick with Jesus because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than fill in the blank. In the book of Hebrews, it's specifically Jesus is better than the Old Testament law and Judaism. But really, the whole point of Hebrews is that it doesn't matter what you put in the blank here. Jesus is better. And so to help us see this truth, we're going to look at the life you want, the wrong ways to get it, and a better way. But before we do, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it speaks to real issues that we're facing in our real lives. And I pray today that you would be speaking to us through your word helping us to really understand and believe that Jesus is better. So God, show us who you are more clearly. Show us how to trust in you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, the life you want. Like I said, the the people this book was written to, they were suffering because of their faith in Jesus. Now, the, the people this book was written to, most likely, it's a group of Jewish Christians who are living in danger of turning back from Jesus to Judaism. So they grew up Jewish, they heard about Jesus, they said, yes, we trust in him, and now they're realizing this is really hard, maybe our life would be easier if we just went back to being just Jewish. And the book of Hebrews doesn't tell us explicitly what's happening with these people that's making them feel like going back to Judaism is the best option. But between some context clues from the book and what we know of of how Christians were treated in this time from history, there are a couple of good guesses we can make about the types of things that they were facing. So first, it appears that by becoming Christians, these Jewish Christians had cut themselves off or, or been cut off from their cultural heritage, and possibly they've been banned from their synagogues. So remember, these people, they all grew up as Jewish. The synagogue is part of their life. You can't imagine following God without being part of the synagogue. And when Christianity first came on the scene, it was seen as a a branch of Judaism. But as more people became Christians and more time went by and the Jewish people realized how different Christianity is from Judaism, they started more and more to see Christians as outsiders to Judaism. And so synagogues, the places where the Jewish people would go to worship, they decided, let's get rid of the Christians. 
And so they would do things like they had prayers that everyone would say together in their service. You know, you, they didn't have screens back then, but it's the equivalent of putting the prayer up on screen and everyone reads it out loud together. And the prayers would say things like, cursed is everyone who trusts in Jesus. Which means if you're a Christian and you want to go to the local synagogue service, by going there, you have to pray curses on yourself and everyone else who trusts in Jesus with you. It makes it a little bit hard to go be part of the synagogue if you are a Christian. And it's not like, you know, in today's world, if, if you don't like something at one church, you're just like, oh, I'll go to the church down the road. No, there was a concerted effort by the synagogues across everywhere to get rid of the Christians. All the synagogues were trying to get the Christians out from them. And so for Jewish Christians who grew up in and around the synagogue, who saw their Jewish heritage as a core part of their Christian faith, to be banned from the synagogue was a huge deal. It was the Jewish community's way of saying, you're no longer one of us. You're an outsider. You don't belong here. And it wasn't just a religious shunning. They would have been cut off from every part of life of the Jewish community in their area. Based on context clues in this book, it's most likely that the Jewish Christians that this book is written to were living outside of Israel, which means they were foreigners living in a foreign land. A lot of us here are expats. I'm an expat. And even among those of us who aren't expats, a lot of us have lived overseas at some point in our lives. So as people who, by and large, have lived overseas at some point, I think many of us can relate to this feeling of when you're a foreigner somewhere and you walk down the street and you see someone from your home country, doesn't, don't you just have some feeling of home when that happens? Like, like, this is a person that I can connect with on a level that no one else in this place understands. Like, I, I love you guys. I'm so thankful to be a part of the Bridge Church. But when I'm walking down the street and I see another American and I start chatting with them, there's just like something about like feeling like, ah, oh, this person gets me on a level that no one not from America can understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. But here's the thing. By cutting themselves off from the life of the Jewish community in their area, these Christians were sacrificing that. They were giving up their ability to connect with their fellow country people and have that ability to, to feel home in a foreign land. It, it cost them a lot to follow Jesus. But it wasn't just that. It also quite likely put them in physical and economic danger to follow Jesus. See, in the Roman Empire, there was this law that everyone living in the Roman Empire had to worship Caesar the king of Rome. And so they would have people do things like make sacrifices to Caesar to show that they truly worshiped Caesar. And the Jewish people, when they came into the Roman empire, had negotiated this really good deal where they were exempt from that law, which meant as long as you were part of a local Jewish synagogue, you did not have to worship Caesar and you wouldn't get in trouble for it. But if you left the synagogue, or got kicked out of the synagogue, all of that protection was gone. And so as the synagogue started doing things to get the Christians out from them, 
all of a sudden these Christians, it's not just that you're losing your religious heritage. It's not just that you're losing your cultural heritage. It's not just that you're being cut off from the life of your ethnic group in the community. It's actually putting you in danger because now you're no longer under the protection of the synagogue. We know that in some places, the synagogue leaders would actually go to the local Roman officials and give them a list and say, here are the names of all the Christians who have left our synagogue the past month. Basically an invitation, go find them, go mess them up. And so as you left the synagogue, you were in danger and you had two choices, either worship, Jesus, worship Caesar make sacrifices to him, deny Jesus, or face the consequences. And the consequences could be things like beatings, imprisonment, fines or loss of property, and in extreme cases, death. It was a big sacrifice to follow Jesus. And I'm guessing there may have been some people here at the very start of this sermon, when I mentioned that these people were thinking about turning away from Jesus who may have felt like, how could anyone ever dream of turning from Jesus? You know, maybe, maybe we're tempted to look down on them as lesser or inferior Christians because they were thinking about turning away from their faith. But let me ask you, if following Jesus cost you your cultural and religious heritage, alienation from your fellow countrymen, potential physical or financial harm, do you think you might start to question whether following Jesus is really worth it? Do you think you might start to feel like, like maybe my life would just be better if I forgot about this Christianity thing and left it behind? The thing about these people in Hebrews, it's not that they're horrible people and therefore they want to give up on Jesus. It's that they're normal human beings, just like we are. The reality is they want exactly the same things out of life that all of us want. They want a good life. They want friendships and community and a place to belong and physical safety and the realities of the world they were living in mean that following Jesus threatens all these hopes and dreams that they had. And it's not that any of the things they wanted were bad, right? Friendship, community, a place to belong, physical safety, they're all very, very good things. It's natural and normal to want these things. God himself gave us a desire for all of these things. The problem is, do you love these things more than you love Jesus? That's the problem that they were facing. And at the end of the day, it's something that we have to deal with in our lives as well. Do I love friendship, community, a place to belong, and safety more than I love Jesus? Do I deny Jesus for the sake of getting all these other good things? Or do I hold on to my faith in Jesus and sacrifice these good things because I know that Jesus is better? And so the recipients of the book of Hebrews, in many ways, they're just like us. All of us want friends and community and a place to belong and safety. There's nothing wrong with us wanting these things, but the question is how much do we want them? Because these things, they're good. They're good things. They're good things to want. But if we want them too much, if we want them in the wrong ways, if we want them more than Jesus, they become dangerous for us. And the goal of the author of Hebrews is to convince his audience, to convince them, to convince us, that at the deepest level of your heart desires, you are never going to get what you want in life unless you're getting it from Jesus.
So that's the life you want. Let's, before we dig in and look at his arguments, let's just look at a couple of wrong ways to get it. Because that's the good life we all desire. Again, none of those things that we want are bad in and of themselves, but they just run the risk of becoming bad if we approach them improperly. And the reality is that often we don't approach them properly, right? We, we look at our desires and we think, I want these things in life. And we see God as a barrier to getting them. And so we do things our own ways to get them. We believe that we need to take matters into our own hands if we're going to get the life that we really want, that we maybe feel like we deserve. And any time that we say, yeah, well, I know in my heart Jesus is God, but I don't really believe he wants what's best for me. So I'm going to ignore him and do things my own way. We're doing exactly what the Hebrews were tempted to do. We're turning from Jesus for the sake of having a more comfortable life. This isn't something that that doesn't apply to us because we don't live in a world where we face that type of oppression. We actually face similar types of temptation every single day to turn from Jesus to get the good life that we really want. But here's the super, super dangerous thing for us. In their world, the temptation was to explicitly deny Jesus, to get back into the synagogues or to avoid punishment from Rome. They would have had to do something like say, Christians are cursed or pray to Caesar, or make sacrifices to Caesar, or, or promise that I, I just don't trust in Jesus. And yes, the stakes are really high, but there's also not a lot of gray area there, right? Like it's, it's really hard to stand in the synagogue and say, say with your mouth, all Christians are cursed. And just think in your heart, like, I don't really mean that, right? Like it's pretty black and white. Like you're saying cursed be everyone who trusts in Jesus. That's pretty clear where you're standing. But for us, the, the places and ways where we are tempted to turn from Jesus, to seek the good life, are often a lot more gray. I mean, as far as I know, it's pretty rare for people in this room to face circumstances where people come up and say, you need to promise me that you do not trust in Jesus or else I'm going to physically harm you right? Like, thankfully, we don't live in a world where that's an everyday experience for most of the people in this room. But that means the ways we're tempted to turn from Jesus are far more subtle. Instead of one big proclamation that cursed be all Christians, it it actually turns into a series of small compromises we're called to make every single day to get the life we want. And because each compromise is so small, we might not even notice that we're doing it as we do it, which makes it way easier for us to do the exact thing that this group of people was in danger of doing, rejecting Jesus, but without even realizing that that's what we're doing. So let me give you a couple practical examples from everyday life of what this could look like for people in our world. And maybe none of these apply to you directly, but hopefully they can get your mind thinking about what could this look like in my life? Maybe some of them do apply to you directly. And if so, I I encourage you to think through what does it look like for me to trust in Jesus and truly see him as better? So here's the first example of what this might look like in our world. It's when someone is single and they're in the dating world and they're frustrated that every single guy they date just wants sex. And they think to themselves, I know the Bible says that sex is for marriage, 
But if I don't start sleeping with some of these guys, no one's ever going to keep dating me long enough for me to actually marry them. And so you cross boundaries with your boyfriend that, that you know are wrong, that you know God doesn't approve of, but you justify it to yourself because God forgives our sin. God loves me no matter what. And you've never actually said, I don't believe in Jesus, but, but look at what you've done through your actions. You communicated through your actions. Jesus is a barrier to the, the life of companionship that I desire, the good life that I want. My life would be better if I ignore Jesus for the sake of getting love and companionship from this man than if I trust and obey Jesus and truly believe that he's better. You never say out loud that I don't trust Jesus, but your actions turn away from him because in your heart, you believe that he's a barrier to the good life. So that's one, one way that this could play out in our world. Here's another way, specifically for the students in the room, especially high school students. This is what happens when you start to think, if I want a good university education, I need to spend all my time studying and building up a really, really solid CV. And so you want to make yourself desirable to all the top universities and you build your life around their criteria of success so that they will look at you and say, this is a successful person. We want them in our school. And you know what's not part of a university's criteria of success? Spiritual life. And so you don't read your Bible because all your reading energy goes into reading textbooks. You might still pray, but your prayer life becomes those five seconds as the teacher is handing out exams in the classroom, praying, God, please help me to do okay on this test. You stay up so late Saturday night studying that you can't get out of bed and come to church on Sunday morning. And you justify it to yourself by saying things like, oh, it's only one week. But then one week becomes three and three weeks becomes two months. And you have to change the story you're telling yourself. And it becomes, well, it's just a busy season. But once I get into university, or, or once my exams are done, I'll be back at church. But in the meantime, what are you doing? You're showing through your actions that following Jesus and trusting him is a barrier to the true good life you really want. And I realize that that example is aimed at high school students. If you're an adult in this room and you're like, past that stage, that doesn't apply to me. Remember, the pressure to define success by the world's standards and to excel that, that our teens often feel is most of the time driven by parental expectations. And so what are you teaching your kids about where the good life comes from? What are you teaching your kids about how to define true success? Are you pushing them down a path that will lead them to reject Jesus for the world's success because you've taught them that that's the path to the good life? See, these things, wanting companionship, it's not bad. It's good to want companionship. If you're, if you're married or in a romantic relationship, that's a, a good gift from God. It just becomes dangerous when we want that more than God. Wanting to get a good education and get a good job, that's not a bad thing. It just becomes a bad thing when that's the primary thing we want in life, even more than Jesus. And we're willing to sacrifice our relationship with Jesus in order to get it. And so again, what we're doing here is we're, we're relying on our own effort rather than trusting in Jesus. We're, we're turning from Jesus to get what we want in life, just like the people in Hebrews were tempted to do. They're no different than us. 
the arguments that the author is using to convince them to really trust in Jesus for the good life, they apply to the everyday situations that we face in our world. And he wants them to know that Jesus is better. So let's look at what he actually says here, the better way to show us why we should trust in Jesus rather than building our lives around these other things. And so when we get to Hebrews chapter eight, the first argument that he uses to show us that Jesus is better is to tell us that Jesus is our great high priest. And unless you've spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament, that probably means nothing to you, right? But it's actually hugely significant in each of these day-to-day scenarios we just looked at. And here's how. A priest is a mediator between humanity and God. The priest stands before God on behalf of humanity and, and pleads humanity's case before God for why God should accept us and love us and welcome us. And the priest stands before humanity on behalf of God, delivering messages from God to his people. And the high priest was the leader among the priests. He was the top priest. He got special access to God that nobody else got. And if you look at verse three, it says part of the high priest's role is to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of humanity. Now, one of the big messages of the Bible is that humanity on our own is not good enough to stand in God's presence by our own power. Each of us has prioritized things other than God above God in our lives. It's what the Bible calls sin. And by doing that, we've cut off our relationship with God. We deserve some type of consequence or punishment from him for that. And the gifts that the priests offer are to cover our shortcomings. And so we as humanity, if we are ever going to stand in God's presence and not just get wiped out completely, we need a high priest who can offer sacrifices on our behalf so that we can stand before God. And Jesus, our great high priest, has offered the greatest sacrifice himself. We see this in chapter 7, verse 27. It's talking about Jesus. It says, he has no need like those high priests in Judaism to offer sacrifices daily. That's part of what they did. They would offer sacrifices every single day under the old system in Judaism. But Jesus doesn't need to do that since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus died to pay the price we owe for prioritizing other things against God, for rebelling against God's right rule in our lives. Because of his sacrifice as our great high priest, you and I can now stand before God and be loved and accepted rather than judged and rejected because Jesus is better. And if you have any question about whether his sacrifice was enough, we have the proof of it from the first few verses of chapter eight. Like we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You know what that means? The throne of majesty is God's throne. The right hand is a position of power and respect and authority. And so what he's saying is Jesus, our high priest who represents us to God and and mediates between us and God on our behalf, He is in a position of respect and power and authority in God's presence 24-7, using that power for our good. He's been admitted into God's presence because of 
what he did for us, to be our representative. His sacrifice is enough. Now, think back to those examples I just gave. Let's compare Jesus as our high priest and mediator to those examples we just looked at. Because the reality is when we stop trusting in Jesus and we start relying on our effort for the good life, what we're really doing is just trying to make the case to someone that we're enough. We're trying to make the case that we are enough. But when we're the ones trying to make this case for ourselves, it never has the power that Jesus has. The girl who's trying to make the case to her boyfriend that she's enough by sleeping with him. I mean, the boyfriend may or may not believe that she's enough, but even if he does, he's a far inferior substitute to God. The student and their parents who are trying to make their case to the university that that they're enough, that they are worth accepting. They may or may not make that case to the university. The university may accept them, but even if it does, Harvard's approval is a poor substitute for God's. Jesus is in the presence of God himself, arguing on our behalf 24-7 for us to have love and acceptance and favor and blessing for eternity from God. He's infinitely superior to all the other things we turn from or turn to instead of him. Jesus is better. But the superiority of Jesus, it doesn't stop there. What else do we see about the high priesthood of Jesus right here in this chapter? Verse one says he is seated. Now you might be thinking, why is that important, Eric? Well, here's why it's important. When do you sit down? When your work is done. Jesus did the once for all work of gaining our approval and acceptance and favor with God himself. He is finished. The work is done. And so he sat down. There's nothing more that Jesus does or needs to do to make God love and accept us. There's nothing more that we need to do to make God love and accept us. Jesus has done it all. All we have to do is let go of our effort and trust in what he has already done. And again, let's compare that to what happens when we take matters into our own hands. The girl, she may convince this guy to stay with her by sleeping with him. She may convince this guy to marry her, but as long as they are alive and in this relationship, her work of seeking validation by having someone to love her is never finished. She's always going to feel pressure to do more so that he doesn't leave her. And if the day comes where she does mess up or she doesn't work hard enough and he actually does leave her, everything she had in the relationship will be gone. And because of that, she can never sit down like Jesus does because her work of self-validation is never complete. Or this student who wants to get into Harvard, he may convince Harvard that he is worth accepting or she is worth accepting. You as a parent may be able to convince Harvard that your child is worth accepting, but we all know that's not the end of the road. No, once you're into Harvard, you need to get good grades there. And then you probably need to get into a good grad program in today's world. And then you get into the workplace and you find a job. And this job is probably going to expect you to be on call seven days a week, including weekends and holidays. And you'll need to keep working tirelessly to to keep your boss satisfied and prove to your boss that you really are enough. And then you'll get promoted and you'll feel a whole new new wave of pressure to, to 
show everyone that I really deserve this promotion, that they really made the right choice by putting me in this new role. And you're going to keep working your way up, and every step is going to come with new pressure, new need to work harder and harder and harder. And even when you retire, can you really relax? Probably not, because you need to figure out how to secure your legacy so future generations can know how great you were. You can never sit down like Jesus does here because your work of proving your greatness is never complete. But Jesus is seated because his work is done. Which means that if we trust in Jesus, we have validation and approval and acceptance and eternal success and love that can never be taken away from us. There's absolutely nothing more we need to do to earn it. It's only when we trust in Jesus as our great high priest, rather than taking matters into our own hands, that we actually have the freedom to truly rest. Jesus, as our great high priest, he gives us rest that we can only ever dream of if we're seeking the good life through our efforts, because Jesus is better. And here's the thing, we've looked at like two of his arguments that he uses in like two verses right here for showing that Jesus is better. There are so many more of these arguments throughout the book. The author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is better. He's better than our small, pathetic grasping for love and approval in this world. He's better than our tireless pursuit of more. He's better than our self-centered desire for comfort. And again, it's not that our desires for a good life are bad. But when we seek them apart from Jesus, when we seek them instead of Jesus, we seek them in ways that are destructive and in ways that can never truly satisfy. It's only through Jesus that we get the good life we long for in a way that's truly secure, truly satisfying. And just to clarify, I'm not saying if you trust in Jesus, he's gonna make you a millionaire, you're gonna have a successful life and a great marriage, no. Jesus' life is the pattern for the Christian life. Jesus suffered and died and then was glorified. If we follow him, it will cost us now. There will be sacrifices, just like for the Hebrews. But the suffering and sacrifice is never the end of the story when Jesus is part of it. Whatever we sacrifice to follow him now, God will give us so much more in eternity that it cannot compare. And so how do we get to this place where we truly believe Jesus is better. Where we actually have that freedom to say, I I want these good things. I really want these good things. But if it's going to cost me Jesus, it's not worth it. Because Jesus is better. How do we get there? And I think a big first step is just properly understanding who Jesus is. See, if, if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is a barrier to the good life, we don't actually know who Jesus is. If your picture of Jesus is someone who's a barrier to the good life, then the Jesus that you picture in your mind is a Jesus that you've made up in your mind, not the Jesus of the Bible. It it uses the same name, but it's not the same person. You have a partial understanding of Jesus that makes him completely unsatisfying in your eyes. The problem isn't with Jesus, it's with our understanding of him. And so if that's you, if you have this wrong understanding of Jesus, and let me just say, that's all of us on some level, maybe on a bigger level for some of us and a smaller level for others, but all of us have some level, a wrong understanding of who Jesus is. 
I want to encourage you to take some time to really dig into the Bible this week. Now, when I say really dig into it, I'm not saying like, read it so that you can check it off your to-do list and say, I did that, right? What I'm saying is, as you read, look for what is this telling me about God, about who he is and how he relates to us. What are the promises that God is making to me in his word about who he is and how he relates to me and what he will do for me if I trust in him? And, and something really, really helpful in this, when you find something that really just like connects with you, don't keep reading, pull out your phone, set a timer for five minutes and just pause and reflect on how amazing that promise is. Give it time to sink in. Think through how that impacts the way that you approach all these different scenarios in your life. Like, like in Philippians, it says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Like if I actually believe that's true, that God will supply every need that I have according to his riches and glory, I'm not gonna be stressed about so many things in life that stress me out. But I'm not gonna reach that point until that truth has worked its way, not just into my head, but into my heart, where I feel it as the deepest reality in day-to-day -day life. And so when I say dig deep into your Bible this week, that's what I'm talking about. Taking these truths about how God relates to us and how he loves us and how he is better and repeating them to ourselves again and again until we feel the truth and power and weight of that. And once one promise has sunk into our hearts and we feel like it's true, which might take, might take a week, might take longer, of just repeatedly re reminding ourselves of it and working it into our hearts, then find the next one that resonates with us and do the same thing again and again and keep repeating this process until the picture of Jesus in your head and in your heart aligns with the picture of Jesus in the Bible until you don't believe anymore that Jesus is a barrier to the good life, but you believe that in every way, shape, and form possible, Jesus is better. Church, we all want the good life. That's not a bad thing. It's a good desire that comes from God, but the good life only comes from Jesus. Any other path we take that requires us to reject Jesus or, or turn from Jesus or compromise our faith in Jesus can never give us that lasting satisfaction we want because Jesus is better. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are better. We thank you that your promises are secure, that your work is complete, that you stand before God on our behalf, telling the God who rules the universe to accept us because of what you've done, not because of our effort. Thank you that in you we can, we can rest because the work is complete. You've done it all for us. I pray that you would forgive us for the times where we instead of believing that, believe that you're a barrier to the good life. Forgive us for the times we take matters into our own hands and turn from you and seek other good things as greater good than you. Teach us to see more accurately and clearly who you are this week so that we can trust in you and follow you and find the good life in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.